Today, we examine some research on the battle of the sexes, arguments for dividing choirs by sex in adolescent singing. I have an interview with Susie Digby, the conductor of the Aura Singers, based out of London, and we'll take a look at some Renaissance music that are meant for single-sex ensembles. This is Early Music Monday. So there is so much research that has been done on dividing singers by sex in the adolescent years. I don't think my two cents is really going to change anybody's mind. But I think that in terms of early music, it's really interesting to look at a lot of these cathedral choirs are predominantly male. What would happen in choirs or church choirs or choir schools that have female singers, whether they're female young choristers or, you know, adult females, or, you know, how do you kind of configure those types of questions in a public school setting when approaching this rep? If you're teaching at a middle school or a junior high school or elementary school where you have a children's choir or a beginning group of high school students, you know, freshmen, sophomores. There's ways that we can approach early music and still follow the research of dividing the sexes seems to be uh, more of a more advantageous than keeping them together in those beginning groups, according to the research. But again, there you could look at, I, I read for hours like dissertations and choral journal articles about the benefits and what I read, the benefits far outweighed the negatives. I didn't even really see negatives. And if I had to group all the research that I saw, if I had to group kind of all of their research into four main categories, these are the main reasons that I heard for dividing the sexes. One, the vocal maturation process is vastly different between male and female. Um, sociology, physiology, and retention. And that got me thinking about Nigel Short, um, that interview where Nigel Short kind of mentioned the process of watching his son kind of audition or observe the Christchurch at Oxford boys rehearsal at the Cathedral Choir School and how he said they were all hyper-focused and, you know, they wanted to do a good job and they looked up to the other men in the choir. I just thought that was really interesting because there's so many other factors beyond just the voice that contribute to, you know, the reasons why you would want to have boys and girls separate. Later in our interview with Susie Digby, she also mentions a couple of other reasons that kind of got me thinking about this topic in the first place. So a place to turn for some research is Patrick Freer. Patrick Freer is a researcher who has several articles published in the Choral Journal about the adolescent male voice and about gender difference in the choral classroom. I will post links to those articles, to several of those articles, um, on the Sound of Ages website blog posts. So one of those articles that I'll just kind of touch on is an article where he and some other researchers interview a bunch of, from varying countries, boys in these choir schools and in public school, the you know, the equivalent of public school, and why some of them quit choir and why some of them stayed with it. it, it they interview several. 
and many of the boys that were interviewed preferred music with more emphasis on melody as opposed to harmony. I thought that was super interesting because another thing that Susie says and that we know from the Renaissance is that early music focuses a ton on melodic line. Let them sing something interesting. If they're just singing chord, 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 it gets boring after a while. Even if that melody is somewhat ostinato-ish and repeating, like say you take, I don't know, this is the first ostinato I heard when I defined ostinato, so it's always what comes to my head. Even if you're doing an arrangement of Charlie Brown and you have the basses, boom, boom, beam, boom, 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 beam, boom, beam, you, you can have that kind of melodic line, even though it repeats a bunch, that's more fun to sing than kind of just these homophonic chord, 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 chord. And so a lot of them preferred these kind of Greek Orthodox chants that they were doing in, in their cathedrals to anything, you know, contemporary choral. And it blew my mind. I was like, oh, let them sing chant. Yes. There's something so moving about singing chant. And it makes half of them, three quarters of them, think that they're singing the Halo video game soundtrack. They're like, whoa, this sounds just like Halo. Exactly. Where do you think Halo got it from? They got it from chant. So letting them sing those melodies really can be an impactful experience. And the same thing goes with young females as well. Everyone wants to sing the melody. Now, that doesn't mean you can't sing different parts. You can even teach it to them in parallel fourths like organum. And that's a great ear training thing. But let them sing something melodic. So I think that te having Renaissance music to teach that kind of melodic singing and get them excited, there's totally ways we can bring exciting melody. You know, listen to this imitation. Cool, you sing it, then you sing it, then you sing it. Let's all sing it together. And then let's sing it at different times, like a cannon or a round. can be really exciting, and you can kind of bring these composers to life. So that's one example of, of some research. I'll post, there's, again, several articles that I read and dissertations that I read kind of looking into this. And those are kind of some of my main takeaways. Um, the, the female voice is altogether different, and there's not as much research about it. There's some recent ACDA interest sessions, actually, about the female adolescent voice that are really good. Um, if you're a member of ACDA, can get on and, and look back at those interest session abstracts and stuff. But the, the main reason for separating out the sexes is mostly so that they can have a safe environment to really go for it, and they don't feel the pressure from the opposite sex, and they can be instructed on their vocal technique through their voice change, at the, like, because they're all going through the same thing. I have the hardest time with my intermediate group dealing with, I have some girls who are seniors and some boys who are sophomores and their voices are just, like still changing. And the senior girls are, their voices are way more developed and they're ready to go. They're ready to move fast. And the sophomore boys are just figuring out, that, you know, they just took the training wheels off their bike and skipped the bike pedal part and went straight to driving a car and it's and it's a stick shift and they you know it's like freaking hard and so to teach in a classroom like that where there's such a variety of of vocal change happening is is really difficult so um i think there's a lot to be said for for dividing the sexes it gets a little tricky when you get into the territory of transgender students I had a transgender student in my class as a junior high teacher, and uh, I won't mention her name, but something that really set the tone for the entire year was a conversation that she and I had on the first day. 
and I pulled her aside and we just talked very openly and honestly and respectfully about, hey, I'm going to talk about things when I talk to the to the boys and I'm going to say things about the passaggio and about the larynx and about coming up to the high notes and head voice that will apply to you. And I'm going to do everything I can to say basses and tenors or baritones and tenors instead of, okay, boys, or hey, men. And I, I said the wrong thing a couple times and had to catch myself and just made eye contact with her and gave her a little smile. And she returned the smile and knew that like that was our way of communicating that, oh, dang, sorry. And she was great about it. And she worked really hard to sing bass, baritone, and and her voice developed really well. So, so there's modifications that you have to make. And it was a mixed choir, so I was able to put her in a mixed choir instead of, okay, well, which choir do I put you in? Uh, I would be really interested to hear your thoughts about if there is only, you know, divided sexes, choirs, single sex choirs, and you have a transgender student, kind of what do you, what you do about that? I don't have the answer. I think that's a really tough question. Um, but that's when I would lean towards finding a place for them in a mixed ensemble of some kind. So we'll get into our composer profile where we talk about music that's specific to, you know, trebles versus bass tenor ensembles, uh, divided single-sex repertoire at the end of the episode in our composer profile. But right now, we'll turn to our interview with Susie Digby. Welcome, Susie Digby, to the podcast. I'm honored that you would come on and, and give some of your precious time to us over here in the Western United States. <clears throat> well, Cameron, it's my honor. Thank you very much for asking me. So I would love to hear to start for myself and for the audience listening um, a little bit of your story of how you became to how you came to the post of conducting the aura singers and as a how you came to be a choral conductor professional. Right. Well, I guess it all started from the age of three when I started singing and haven't really stopped since then <laughs> and um then i had a big 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 urge drive to work with children and working with the voice and children led me to obviously start my choral activity and so then for many decades really i had sort of dual career of music education i started three of my own foundations of music education through singing and the other part of my career was choral conducting because um, I'd always sung in choirs. My father took me to a church to sing in a church choir when I was nine. And wow. he was singing tenor and I was singing soprano. And so being involved in um, the repertoire, particularly the Anglican repertoire from a very young age, um, I was very, very driven to work as a conductor in that repertoire. So I had these two strands of my career, really. V big passion to get children singing, yeah. but also another passion to get people singing the repertoire, which I loved. So I, I was really working with all types of choir you can imagine. Every <laughs> sure. opportunity I possibly had. Yeah. That's so amateur choirs, choirs who couldn't sing, very good choristers, you know, every, every opportunity I could start a choir, I started a choir. Yeah. Um, and so that's really been my life all over the world, based in Asia for many years. And I lived in Mexico um, oh. and in Eastern Europe and in the UK. Oh, wow. So you've been all over doing this work. Yes. That's fantastic. And I, I find that because Correct me if I'm wrong, but having a girls, young girls sing in the church choirs, that was pretty rare for a while, wasn't it? Well, not really, not in not in regular Anglican churches. Gotcha. So gotcha. in regular Angl Anglican churches, 
you would mainly have women, um, okay. uh, altos and sopranos. Um, it's more in the choir schools that you get the boys. Mm. And that's been really an exclusive preserve of that type of choir has been the boys treble. But of course now they're starting um, very rapidly. Um, all the main choirs have got a parallel girls choir because it's very important you keep the boys separate from the girls right. pre-puberty. So you have then in parallel, most institutions are now have, have girls choirs as well. Whereas in my London youth choir, which I started, wow, eight years ago now, wow. um, we have a boys, young boys choir. We have, we have five choirs, a pyramid of five choirs. Oh, so wow. young girls, young boys, we bring them together for concerts, but we train them separately. Sure. And then going all the way up to the youth choir and then the choral scholars at the top, all mixed. That's awesome. What are what do you feel like are some of the benefits of teaching them separately before? People? Okay, so I'll so that's a it's a big 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 subject, but yeah. what I would do for anyone who's doubting that you need to separate boys and girls, I'll t just tell you a little story about an experiment I did so many many years ago in rough inner city schools in in rough inner city London. Yeah. So I started. From scratch, I started an after-school club for boys and girls mixed. Yeah. This is all pre-puberty, all pre-the broken voice. Sure. So, um, so in one class, I started twelve boys and twelve girls. Then, across another part of London, I started an all-boys group, and this was for really challenging young boys who were approaching puberty but still had unbroken voices, and right. who were displaying behavioral issues that's one of the things I really love to work with yeah and that group was 25 boys so you had 12 girls and 12 boys mixed on one side of London and the and the 25 boys on the other okay halfway through the second year both groups had grown I used very different repertoire for both groups sure. both groups had grown enormously the boys group had grown slightly more than the mixed group but in the mixed group, there were only two boys left. Oh, wow. So, Can you so there were 48 <laughs> in the mixed group and 50 in the boys group by the middle of the second year. Oh, wow. So, and, and that's just, that's a little story I tell people who, who are not convinced. So it is, and the minute you introduce girls, the boys leave. Yeah. So this is what makes that all male domain of the of the the cathedral choirs where you have the young boys in the front row and these amazing men behind them, you know, yeah. and they're real blokes, you know, they're real. <laughs> they've got these incredible voices. Right. And it makes the boys want to be there. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a male domain. And they have and that that's what makes it survive role model to look to. And they exactly and they feel like, man, I, I want to sing like them. Exactly. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I didn't realize that you had spent so much time working with young singers. So my questions that I have in front of me, I'm having other questions pop into my head. So because so, so, you asked about aura singers, and I, I was halfway through telling you the story that one day, because because the, the, the key to this is commissioning yeah. new music. Right. So every time I found myself with a different group of singers, I realized I need repertoire for that group. So I started commissioning 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Sure. And I started commissioning and commissioning and commissioning all over the world for my groups. Right. Then I woke up one day and thought, wow, we're in an era where, mu where new music is, has changed. It's become really accessible and it's yeah. kept and very high quality accessible. And, we're, and I suddenly thought we are in a new golden era of choral composition and I must now create a professional group of singers yeah. to record and commission a hundred new works wow. uh, from a hundred great choral composers and I, I need to get them recorded at the highest level and that's why I started Aura. Yeah and that and I love the I'm mean, every album and video that you guys have put out sounds just fantastic and it's so clean but it's also really expressive and 
Um, I love the, um, so to back up and to just so as part of the conversation, we mentioned, I mentioned this a little bit in when I reached out to you, but the, the group that I conduct here in, in Utah, we, we specialize in early music, but kind of with an educational element of trying to connect that music to another time period or other composers through musical and non-musical means to kind of just like bring the audience to that music because the culture yeah. that we have here, especially like in the Western United States is not quite as well-versed in that repertoire. Um, right. And so it still sounds fairly foreign but we're not yeah. we really focused on commissioning new works. But I, I love what you said in the video. Um, oh, I can't remember what one, what YouTube, one of the YouTube videos you were doing an interview and you talked about how the music of Talus and Bird are perfect. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. What, what are some things kind of maybe some specific elements of their works and the the renaissance particularly the british british renaissance that you would define as perfect right well it's like it's like um looking at shakespeare and yeah. uh, let's say a sonnet from shakespeare yeah. and reading it and thinking that is perfection yeah it you know it was written all these years all these hundreds of years ago but you can't say that we've made anything better than that in right. language so it kind of backs up my belief that human human you know we, we go in human history we go through periods of great fertile genius where yeah. everything comes together and at that time which was contemporaneous with shakespeare yeah. the music the great elizabeth elizabethan golden age we yeah. were producing Talis and Bird and music like that, many, many others as well. Sure. And of course, the Renaissance extended across the whole of Europe. So it's not just England, although there's something very special, I think, about what was being produced under Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, because London, well, London was the richest place in the world at that time. Right, right. So you have everything coming together and composers coming to, Italian composers coming to live and work in, in, in England. Sure. And yeah. so um, if you take a piece like Birds Ave Verum, mm. and if you know it and you inhabit it and you know it really, really well, it's like it, I mean, we need to know the stuff before we can really appraise it, I think. So you need to live with it a lot yeah. before you recognize its genius. And um, it is perfection. I, I often think of that piece as a sort of complete universe yeah in itself it lasts what six seven minutes seven minutes yeah. and somehow the 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 renaissance composers were able to create these mini masterpieces just six minutes long and because they had a, a sort of toolkit of compositional devices yeah which were able to create this perfection in such a short time scale they had everything you know it was polyphonic so every line is perfect the treatment right. of text the structures the way harmony was forming itself at that time yeah. there were there were very 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 clear rules of composition and so the geniuses were able to stretch those rules to their maximum. So they were exciting and fresh and still to our ears. I mean, I don't know how many times I've performed that piece. <laughs> right. Every time it seems to more wondrous. To yeah. Me. And I it's think, incredible. And those are the pieces that again, because regardless of, you know, where you where you put your emphasis emphasis as a choral director or as a musician in general, those pieces have stood the test of time and yeah. will last forever because of that kind of interweaving of perfect elements of like you said the texture and the the melodic line and I I think that that's all another reason why is singers love singing that exactly so so you know you get you get a group of like aura singers i mean these guys are 
cynical yeah. they're they've been around the block they've sung everything they've sung everywhere they've sung for every conductor right yeah, they've sung yeah. every piece of music that's been thrown at them from medieval to what was written yesterday right but right. when they are singing that music they are absolutely in they are the embodiment and the music is the embodiment of them and it it could be partly because they've been singing it since they were boys or, or girls you yeah. know it it but it's more than that it's right. something intrinsic in the genius of those works as you say that have stood the test of time and i yeah, i totally agree with that and i think there's probably something special i i'm i went with with brigham young university we did a six week study abroad in London with their choral department. So we were there for six weeks and we went to as many choral things as we could. This was like three years ago. Yeah. And uh, I just remember thinking of, man, there's something really special about the perspective these singers have of this is our music. Like yeah, it's in, it's in kind of your musical genes too. Yeah. Of like, in this very church was William Byrd 500 yeah. years ago, 600 years ago, whatever. And it, 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 that here in America, we don't really get that since we're such a new country, really. Well, I, I, you know, yes, I, in some respects, that's true. But I've performed that piece with my Los Angeles professional ensemble, The Golden oh. Bridge. And I've performed a lot of Renaissance music because I do, I have this, group and I commissioned Californian composers to oh. reflect English Renaissance masterworks but they have the same response to that music really you know? and once they've sung it and they've become I mean some of them have known it for a long long time others yeah. are new to it um, a lot of them admittedly will will inhabit some form of Anglican choral tradition within their churches and stuff that they all come from in California but still that there, there is this human this deep human response yeah um to that music and I and I do believe that that response will you can elicit anywhere in the world yeah and that's really I, I think would you agree oh I well and I I feel it I haven't been enough places as a conductor I don't think to know I know that I 100% feel that way, and and my singers even because I teach I teach public school as well. So I've taught seventh our seventh grade through graduating into college, twelve through eighteen year olds, and mm. they have similar responses when they understand kind of where the music is coming from. Um, some of these early works, and and they know that it's kind of uh, one of the things I'm passionate about. So they know I'm a big time, uh, you know, dead composer society type person. And <laughs> yeah. they, and they, so they respond well to that too. But it's like you said that they need some time to, yeah, to, to live in the space for a little bit. And when, yeah. when I find when I do that, that it's, they do have that same experience. So do they? Yeah. It's do they love it? Do they ask to perform it? I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and they like, I, I so what I did with my ninth graders at the junior high is I put them into quartets or quintets, and I Brilliant. I just put on cpdl.org on the whiteboard, and I put them in on their computers and said, "Here's a list of composers," and put a bunch of Renaissance composers up and said, "Go find a piece that you want to do in your group." They brought it to me, I'd approve it, then I'd create like a rehearsal track for them because they Brilliant. didn't have piano skills kind of. And then I'd just kind of bounce around during rehearsal and let them rehearse it. And they, Brilliant. I mean, it was like the most fun concert that we did. Oh my goodness. I mean, that, I wish every choral director in the world would do that with their kids. <laughs> well, I, it's a I, brilliant way to approach it. Well, and it like, cause it just, it does so many things in my mind. It, it they love, when when I give them a dead composer or a historical work or a like more specifically a Renaissance piece, they're not instantly like, oh, you know, here's the obligatory mm. historical work. They mm. they're just as excited as if I give them something contemporary. Mm. And it also helped build kind of independent 
singer responsibility of, okay, you don't have anyone else to rely on you. Mm. You have to do this because that is the way to do it. They don't, a lot of us, especially as, you know, many of here in Utah, many of us are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we don't have that, you know, boy choir tradition. And Mm -hmm. so we just, in in our youth in church, we grow up singing church songs together, but it's always just singing the melody. So they're used to hearing that top note. They sing it a lot, hear it. So learning how to be independent is is kind of well, and nothing nothing will give you that independence through all the parts, like Renaissance polyphony, right? Because um, you know, every voice is of equal importance. Yeah. And the other thing that we haven't talked about, which is so important, and the reason why singers love it so much, is that it lies in the voice so well. Yeah. And it lies on the breath so well. Mm. So it just, each phrase takes one breath. Right. And so, and they're cr- each line is crafted on the breath mm. and within a pitch range that is really comfortable. So a lot of professional singers love their Sunday jobs in like say Westminster Cathedral or Westminster right. Abbey as lay clerks because they can exercise their voices right. on the, the renaissance stuff and it's just a great way to produce this lovely creamy sound you're not stressing your voice it's a wonderful way to 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 just keep the voice ticking over at the same time you're just loving it right you know it's it's wonderful wonderful high quality material and that yeah and that's like again i think that's so important for i mean once again, here in Utah, we have a really high, high number of amateur uh, community choirs, like really dense. There's one in like yes. every town and it's really fantastic. Fantastic, and it, yeah. And it's these, but it's these kinds of things that I think can really take those groups, uh, including my own groups to the next level of independent you know because singing in parallel thirds for an extended time is not easy on the ears for young kids to sing no it's tricky for them to find that but these polyphonic lines it's like exactly no, look, and it's developing melody. the ear yeah and good chorals you know good choral singing is all about the ear right and and not enough directors i don't think put that at the center of sure. everything yeah so I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I adjudicate, I adjudicate so many choirs around the world. Sure. And it's rare to find a choir where the director has put listening at the center of everything. Um, so, so it's you know when you're looking at devices to tune your choir. Yeah. You've got to be really creative about extending their capacity to hear and to listen that's all it takes yeah and um so when you're doing one voice per part renaissance polyphony that is what you're doing yeah it's all about the ear yeah and i I think it it and it's also this so you can create i think that's why it's so fascinating to me that I wish more conductors would do this type of music on a regular basis. But to me, that's what makes it even more perfect in a practical standpoint, not just in its musical construction, but in its approach, because it teaches like every musical skill at the same time. And, and so that's, that's Well, that's, that's another thing that, you know, coming back to aura. Yeah. Yeah. That it seemed to me, we're in a new golden age of choral composition, number one. Number two, I have access to the best choral musicians in the world. Absolutely. Now, what does that mean? So it means four things. Number one, demon sight reading. Yeah. Because if you, you know, these are expensive singers, you've got to put it together. I, you know, I put that Tate modern thing together on yeah. one three-hour rehearsal on the day. Right. And it's like monster. it's insane. And one singer came in on the day because someone else came down with COVID. Oh, so, yikes. you know, number one, so demon sight reading. Number two, and I mean demon, like right. being able to sight, to read anything. Yeah. Number two, stylistic versatility. 
So these guys can slip into German, into Latin, into Russian, into French, into mm. Renaissance, Baroque, Romantic, contemporary. Yeah. They can just slide into any, uh, any stylistic thing. Number three is the vocal ability. So the, these, these, every, every one of them can sing a beautiful solo line. And so it's that beautiful vocal quality. And number four is the ability to sing an ensemble. Yeah. And if you have all four of those skills, you know, and the, these very elite singers that we have access to here, and, and they're better than they've ever been in any other previous generation. This is what scares me about COVID. Right. Is that the what feeds through to this top level. Right. Is, is from the choir schools, from the schools, from the training courses in, in school holidays, yeah. from the... Oxbridge co colleges, right. where they're getting, you know, being thrown new repertoire every day, up to the top, to the profession, the colleges, and everything. If that's interrupted for a generation, you know, it's very bad news for us. Yeah, because then there's a generation that's yeah, it's a generation gone. So, so these, it seemed to me that, you know, it would be a crime not to bring all this together. Right. And to go, and I had to raise a lot of money for the recordings. Yeah. But, you sure. know, I was in a position to do that. And so we've recorded now 50 new works with their Renaissance counterpart. And we're now starting the next 50 from 50 different composers. Oh, so right. by the time we've, in another five years, we'll have 100 recordings, uh, new works recorded with, paired with their Renaissance counterpart so so i hope we'll have a snapshot of the genius of the 21st century <clears throat> yeah well that leads me to another question is how, do how does that process work for aura do you pick or is is there like um board members or do you pick which renaissance pieces are going to be reimagined and which composers are to set those or talk us through that process yeah so um we have we have a, a sort of creative team Mm -hmm. um so and look we will feed into that so sometimes it'll just be me wanting to commission a composer because i have a long list of composers i want to commission sure sometimes sure. there'll be a, a lot of i'm written to every day by composers so sure i mean literally sure. every day i get scores so i think no, it. Two, two of the um music publishers have said i'm the, now the most prolific commissioner of new choral music Oh, I, in the world <laughs> your goal I think, you, that is amazing so and so so a lot of composers write to me so we've got long long lists of composers that we want to commission then what happens is that we as a team we as a creative team we put together a program to record mm. um so for example we had the talis disc which won the opus classique best ensemble of the year album which was talis and reflections then right. we had our first disc was um bird which was um uh, we we did the sort of miserere theme and oh, and right. we had eric's eisenwaltz do in felix ego for us and reimagined that it was so powerful amazing yeah. work and then we had roddy williams do the ave verum which has right. been a big hit by with choirs all around the world um, and then the Refuge from the Flames was the the second one, and so Upheld by Stillness was the Bird Five Part Mass. Each oh, right. each movement reflected by a different composer, and then other stuff. And then we did the Talis album. Then we've done a Vespers album, which is yet to be released, and we've done a Victoria album, which is yet to be released. So once we have the the outline of the program we want then we select the composers that we think will do an interesting job with that particular mm -hmm. renaissance piece yeah. with my golden bridge uh, consort um I, i've done, i've taken a different approach so i've gone to composers i want to commission mm -hmm. um so we had an electronic piece uh we wanted an ele electronic piece oh, so wow. we went to alex Sh shapiro Okay. And said, would you like to select a Renaissance piece that really speaks to you? 
And so she chose a piece by Anne Boleyn, which was a song just before she was executed and did this unbelievable electronic piece for SATV chorus and uh, electroacoustic soundtrack. And so I, I try to be really flexible and let the composer get excited yeah. by a piece of music. That's really important. Right. So we have- Their best um, work will come that way, I think. So, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really awesome. Wow. And that, I bet you that, and, and to me, it seems like that would produce such a wide range of interpretations on this thing. So I've listened to a, a lot of the, the pieces on the albums, at least the ones that are on Apple Music and things. Um, what are some things in, in besides those specific ones like the Eschenwalds and the Jonathan Dove and the that was uh, the Song of Songs album that I forgot yeah. to mention the Song of Songs yes. Um, what what are some other elements that that you've seen these composers use in the Renaissance in their yes works? well um, I'd like to talk about the Ken Burton piece which is gospel. Sure. Um, but just to just preface that by saying that when we commission a composer, we give we we let we give them we let them be as free as they want. So we say you can do anything you want with this piece. You yeah. can take one chord, yeah, or you can take you can change the text, or you can take one phrase of text, or you can secularize it. Mm. You can take any point of inspiration. So some composers will create a, almost like a mirror of the whole piece sure. and make it their own and make it really original. But every single composer of the 50 composers from this program have said that it's been so liberating to have the springboard of the original piece because they you can't start with a blank canvas. Right. You need something as a trigger for your imagination. Ah, that's so true. They all And they love the fact that the trigger is the Renaissance piece because there's often so much clarity in it, clarity mm. of structure, clarity of the text. And so given that those parameters, which are very free, we just ask them to keep it to the same length. Oh. And we ask them that we can sequence the piece effectively on the disc. So from a tonal point of view, you know, that we need to sequence it quite well. Um, so the gospel piece on the Talis album, so we, we gave Ken Burton um, a piece of talis and the, 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 the Many of the Wonders is the name of the, of the album and it's the name of this gospel piece. And Ken Burton, who's our sort of foremost gospel composer conductor here in the UK, he is so familiar with the whole Anglican tradition that he was able to build this bridge across from the talis into his gospel world yeah and it's an amazing amazing piece which really bridges both worlds and that excited me very much yeah that's fantastic that that one i haven't listened to so i'm definitely gonna go and 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 check that one out i'm looking at it right now and what and read his program notes because there's a lot in there on the theological side sure that is is helpful to understand when you're listening to it but it's very powerful very powerful that's really cool and you've got instead of a an african-american you see this is one thing that i questioned myself with was should you have an african an african-american or an african uh uh singer yeah uh afro-caribbean as we call it singer intoning at the beginning and we and and ken said no use use one of your english singers to intone it at the beginning yeah and so we followed that advice and it's quite powerful it's quite soulful yeah that's fantastic yeah i'm i can't wait to listen to it that's so exciting what are some things kind of to step back when you talk about putting the disc together or is do you follow I guess, what is the difference in your process between putting together a program for a disc versus a live performance? Right. Well, you need in, in uh, I mean, uh, my um, artistic advisor, David Clegg, who also is my fixer for the singers. Yeah. He puts together these programs 
um, for the for the discs based on um, you know a theme. So, for example, the Song of Songs, he very skillfully, knowing, knowing the, uh, you know, he, he knows a lot more about the theological co constructs than I do. Sure. Uh, knowing the texts, he put, put together a, a wonderful arc of, for the Song of Songs, which hasn't, you know, it, it's a very, very interesting um, uh, set of texts, fascinating, deeply right. erotic yeah, set yeah. of texts with a very complex history. Right. So, um, and, and, you know, he's, he's has a lot of scholarship behind him. And I think it's very important that you partner with people who have the scholarship mm. when you're creating these programs. Um, and, you know, and then you, you have to create a program that's going to last 60, 70 minutes for the disc. Right. And uh, that is going to provide a scholarly trajectory, a story, if you like. Yeah. But that is musically going to really cohere into one. Mm. Yeah. And I think that we've done that extremely successfully and certainly from the reviews, because you want to satisfy your audience and you want the reviewers to you want to know that you're you're underpinned with good scholarship right that you're underpinned with top quality music both on the renaissance side and the new commission side that it provides uh, a you you know a blended and unified 70 minutes of listening yeah and you kind of get all kinds of you know i've seen programs where it's like it's either too much of kind of the exact same thing and then other programs where it's like so diverse and all over the place that none of it really like pieces together it's got to piece together and it's also got to piece together in keys so for example every single one of our renaissance pieces we you know because renaissance music is constantly undergoing new scholarship right so right. we get that we we go to the top scholar and we commission a new edition. Oh, fantastic. So all the editions are uh, new and uh, according to the latest scholarship. And then you have to piece it together so it segues from t the, to the tonal centers of each piece. So they work. So, so there's a lot of work that goes into yeah. creating a disc that is going to get very good reviews from the audience, good reviews from the um, critics, yeah. and that are going to be a, a gratifying aesthetic experience. Yeah, wow, that, that is something that I wouldn't have thought of in terms of a disc or even really a concert is the, the idea of tonal centers or key concepts. How do you connect them? What, what are some specific, like, are you talking about like making sure they're in closely related well, we, keys? Yeah, so, so plain, plain chant is very helpful. Yeah. So you can create a bridge with plain chant. Mm. Um, and that works extremely well in live concerts as well. So another factor in live concerts is that you, you want to use the space. So we often move around the, the space yeah. physically. So if we're moving, we use sometimes we use plain chant to move. And then we need to make sure that the plain chant takes us into the start of the new tonal center. Got it. Yeah, that's so really the cool. ear isn't being made to jump around too much. Yeah. That's, that's very, very important. Um, so the so with our concerts, we have the theater was very important. Modern audiences need theater. You can't, yeah. I, I think it's uh, very important to be imaginative with the way you use the space. You know, sometimes we like to surround the audience. We like yeah. to sing while we're moving. Sometimes we'll say to a composer, composer right, can you write us a piece where we can actually be moving while we're singing? Yeah. Or can you write us a piece where we can be split up into eight different choirs around the place? Right. Or three different choirs around the place. And then, of course, every time we get to a new space, we need to make sure it's safe. Right. Yeah, like so we can actually make it work. Yeah, You're not going to fall, fall off. apart. <laughs> yeah. Fall off a exactly. rug or something. That's, wow, that, that's amazing. And that really kind of makes me rethink even just now rethinking some of the things 
that I have upcoming for the high school and for Sound of Ages of how can I connect them um, kind of tonally, theoretically as well. So that's really cool. And 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 I think the most important thing is always think about the audience experience. So the live audience experience. So audiences love hearing a singer up close. I mean, especially, you know, um, if you've got a good singer. So it's thrilling for an audience to have singers all around. Thrilling. Yeah. They get so excited. Yeah. And, you know, that very often when audience members write to me and say oh my goodness when I had this soprano standing next to me I just had you know I had the chills and it yeah. was incredible I've never had that experience before and and this and so getting audience feedback I mean sometimes you can't sometimes you just have to be up front for the like for example we were in Regensburg uh, this huge cathedral in Regensburg and I had all these ideas so of course with the Allegri Miserere we could send the right. quartet right to the back to the back yeah. and that's wonderful so you have to look at each venue and think what can I do that's creative and exciting and theatrical in this space that yeah. will be musically safe you know and I'm always driving singers mad because at the last moment I'm saying right I want I want you singers to go and stand over there and so they, oh God, do we really have to, you know? And I'm thinking, yeah, let's think about the what's let's think about what the audience is really going to love here. Yeah, and bringing the space to life as well. And making it a complete experience instead of yeah. If you're just going to stand up there and sing exactly what's on the CD the exact same way without moving, then they might as well. I mean, there's a whole different aspect that comes from being there live, but. What other types of things can you do to give them an even more complete experience? I think is yeah great. Then of course there are practical issues like at sure. night you have to make sure the singers have uh, lights on their sta on their stands and yeah you know there's lighting issues and there's acoustic issues and there's music you know at the end of the day it has to be musically safe right you can't have it fall apart you know because they can't see you or because it, you know. So again, it depends on the right. skill of the group. So in Tate Modern, did you see the Tate Modern concert? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was scary. Right. That the was high high stakes because we didn't know what the space was going to be like till six o'clock that evening, yeah. when we all came in covidly safe with our masks on and we sure. went to our space. But the beauty of those singers is that I know they are going to follow the beat they see, even if they're miles away yeah so if it's going to be it, it's going to be safe in their hands and as much as it can be right because they're so experienced and they're so good but right. with a different group of singers that might not have worked right you and know? because they're not used to the, oh my the gosh, distance the sound is so delayed and yeah. I can hear anyone next to me. What am I going to do? But I mean, a piece like exactly. them and the and the uh, James McMillan with forty yeah. individual parts. They're kind of, I'm, I'm <laughs> I would guess that they're all fairly confident to, to say the least. In well, it was a, it was very. I mean, don't underestimate the courage it took for those singers to do what they did that night. Yeah. Um, but, how many of them, do you know roughly how many of them had that been their like first performance back from the lockdowns? Oh, um, so quite a few. Yeah. So when we actually met in a different space to rehearse, yeah, there was a lot of emo emotion. Yeah, a lot of emotion. I'm sure. Um, it was, a, it was, I mean, I feel quite, you know, I feel the emotion welling up in me now just remembering yeah. that. What a way to come yeah. back though like oh my goodness you know, that piece of all pieces to just you know oh. the whole the whole concert is just what a cool way to come back and it was very emotional and you may have heard that young singer speak about it yeah yeah at the beginning in the concert yeah yeah and uh i think she pretty much summed it up yeah i thought she yeah. said really well so mm. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I have one last question before we go that's really beneficial, I think, for many people. But for conductors who are 
wanting to make you know renaissance music or kind of more broadly historical music more of an integral part of their programming mm. but like don't know where to start what advice mm. do you give okay so i would say start with something really simple and really beautiful like talis if you love me yeah so start with four parts and um and bird avivarum which is in five parts yeah and um uh i would say i would say don't don't do it on the piano first mm. you know um i would say listen to it listen to uh other listen to recordings of it yeah trusted re recordings of it to get familiar rather than listen to l try to reduce it on the piano yeah. and then and then and then sing through it without the piano um preferably learn your line before you come to the first rehearsal yeah um and try and avoid fixed pitched instruments oh, right. uh, uh, while you're learning it um as I say, it's probably best to learn it from a, a demo tape first. So have the conductor sing it. I mean, it's fine for the conductor to sing all the parts in, in his own, his or her own, her own pitch. Yeah. Um, uh, as you want it phrased. Yeah. And then come to the first rehearsal, hopefully having learned it already, because they're short pieces, and having got to love it from recordings of it yeah um no i wouldn't necessarily recommend that as a way to learn all music but i think as a way to get engage singers who don't know the music to get them to love it yeah um uh, maybe four or five different recordings of it yeah um, and especially when it's so geared like we talked earlier to the voice i think yeah to learn it from another voice instead of a piano i hadn't i would never have thought of that but that that makes a lot of sense to me yeah i uh, keep away from the piano <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that's a big crutch i think for because i, I know it yeah. is me so yeah well i think it's fine like if you're tuning a chord and you you know you what you know and just go to the keyboard occasionally and fix stuff sure. but um as the starting point i think learn it from a you know from a record from a, a, a practice tape with the, yeah. with the voice and it's fine if that's the director's voice if it's your voice i mean sing the soprano line why not in right. your in your and um or get one of the, your better singers to record it after you've coached them sure yeah uh and 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 tape it but understanding the line yeah so understanding how you phrase off and right. understanding how the sh the shape of the line on the text that's the starting point mm. oh man and that's what it's all text about. driven text driven text driven yeah if you love me keep my commandments right phrasing yeah. it like that sing it that way right instead yeah. of just yeah that's that's the starting point is the text cool and that change because it does when when you approach it that way it changes how you sing it yeah for the better and how it comes yeah. across to the audience uh, you're not singing a sequence of notes right you're singing the text especially when yeah and especially when you consider that they didn't really have i mean their their sense of meter and bar lines and rhythm was vastly different than from our current kind of modern perception of it so it sure was, although there was the tactus so, is regular the tactus has to be regular all the way through right flexible right. but regular so the flexibility comes as you shape the line so right. um it's about shaping the line on the text on the text on the text so as you would say it you sing it yeah. so no two syllables are equally weighted hmm. right Susie, I really appreciate it. And I've learned a lot just 
just listening to your perspective on things and it's i'm my mind is racing all over the place with new ideas. oh wonderful i'm so pleased well it's been such a joy thank you so much good i'm so glad and i and um you know as other things come out to new albums and things months and months ahead of time i'd love to have you on again at some point and look forward to kind of meeting again in the future sometime well thank you so much cameron it's been a great great pleasure Okay, talking about some historical rep that's good for single-sex ensembles. I'm not sure if I would divide these up into, like, you know, beginning piece, intermediate piece, and advanced piece, kind of like the pattern uh, that we've followed in this show so far. But I just kind of want to give just a bunch of pieces that are good for three equal voices really that can be then applied to any single sex ensemble or again like a children's ensemble uh <clears throat> with with boys and girls of unchanged voices that that type of thing so here to start if you go to CPDL and just search for three part music there's a whole page of music that's good for three parts. It's it's kind of tough to dig through the ones that are not as useful, not as practical, and ones that don't have good additions online. But here are some good ones to start. Um, one that I'm actually doing with my men's chorus um, at Spanish Fork High School right now is Ave Maria by Claudio Monteverdi. And it works really well. There's a lot of good imitative entrances, really good sense of line. There's some tricky instances of voice crossing, um, but if you teach it to them as if they have the melody, then it kind of takes the edge off of those moments. It's short. It's two pages long. It's a good Christmas text. And the ranges aren't too extreme. The key could easily be altered. You know, you could do it a half step lower, half step higher, depending on the voices you have. You could do it for um, a female ensemble as well. Another piece, another well, set of pieces that I would look into is the set of Christmas texts by... Anonymous Four. Anonymous Four is a choral group of four women singers, and they've done a lot of medieval music. And they have their own editions of certain medieval texts and pieces that work really well. So they have several, actually, several sets of pieces that all kind of work together. One set is The Legends of St. Nicholas, which have some really exciting Christmas texts. And these are all for three or four parts. And there's some chant in there as well. There's another one, The Miracles of Santiago, talking about, you know, the pilgrimage through Spain, the Camino de Compostela, made famous in the choral world, at least, by Joby Talbot's Path of Miracles. But there's some original uh, kind of medieval settings of texts in that set of pieces. Uh, another one is The Saint's Delight. And probably the most well-known is On Euless Night. One of the ones from On Euless Night is There is No Rose of Such Virtue. And it has that really cool medieval harmonic language with that double leading tone cadence. Uh, we'll talk about the double leading tone cadence at some point. Um, but it's really exciting and great sense of melodic line. There are some longer phrases, so it'd be, it would work well with a large or small ensemble, actually. And it's really repetitive, kind of this strophic type form. 
so it would learn relatively quick. And so that one's probably the most well well known in that set on Euless Night, which is again uh, set for around Christmas time. But that one in particular is so good. Um, a maybe a perhaps more difficult piece, and this would definitely fall in the difficult category, but it's still something that could be done by a single-sex ensemble, would be Regina Celli by British Renaissance composer Robert White. It's for TTTBB. And it is the quintessential British Renaissance, great polyphony. You can have, if you have good either countertenors or unchanged male voices you can have them sing the top lines and they're super fun super singable really catchy quote unquote catchy whatever that means um the ranges are pretty are actually fairly wide for each part so that's kind of what i would say makes it more advanced and so it requires more command of the technique but it's rhythmically fairly simple so you know, depending on the the skill level of the group, it would be a really cool piece for uh, a male ensemble. And there are so there's so many of these. If again, if you go to CPDL and just search three parts, there's so much music in the late medieval time period by. Dufay and Lanel Power and John Dunstable. And we've mentioned some of those in episodes past. If you go back and look at Sound of Ages website on the blogs for those, you'll notice in some of the beginning level pieces that there are some three-part music. Some of it's for like SAT, but that could easily be kind of reconfigured to be for a single-sex ensemble. So just because... Maybe you conduct only a single sex ensemble. That doesn't mean that we can that we have to shy away from doing early music. There's plenty of contemporary composers and arrangers who have taken pieces by those composers as well and rearranged them to be for an ensemble like the King Singers or what or Anonymous Four. They themselves have you know taken a lot of those texts. So uh, don't let it stop you. There are some great works for single-sex ensemble. If you have any suggestions or um, want to reach out for an arrangement or something, just uh, contact us through our website, and uh, we'll point you in the right direction. Um, if you have suggestions of pieces, by all means, send them in, and we'll put them in the blog and hopefully send those out. Thanks for checking out the podcast today, Dividing the Sexes. If you're interested in any of the research kind of I pulled from for the show, it's on our blog on our website, soundofageschoir.com. We had a fascinating interview with Susie Digby. Be sure to check out the Aura Singers and see and hear some of the great work that they're doing over there in London. And we had a composer profile on single-sex repertoire in general. Please be sure to like and subscribe, and a rating of five stars would go a long way and help us out a lot. So we'll catch you next time on Early Music Monday. <laughs>